0: Hello, and welcome to the Basic Income Podcast. I'm Owen Poindexter. And I'm Jim Pugh. And in our last episode, we had a conversation with Rose Broom, who works in the homeless and poverty space. And we're following that up with someone who works in that world as well.
1: Yeah, I had a chance to talk with Millicent Johnson, who's a manager at SF Gives with the Tipping Point community, and has been doing a lot of work helping out organizations that are aiming to fight poverty. And so,
0: Millicent has a, a somewhat unique perspective on, uh, on how the basic income would affect those populations and, and Jim, you were, were able to kind of get into the weeds with her a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, it's interesting to hear the different points of view that people bring in this space. People are working with different social communities and we've definitely seen a variety of takes on what are the right solutions, what, what are the best points of focus to, to really do the most effective job at both fighting poverty and also preventing people from falling into poverty in the first place. Yeah, Millicent absolutely has some some good thoughts about that.
0: So without further ado, this is Jim Hugh and Millicent Johnson on the Basic Income Podcast.
1: All right, Millicent, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: So just to start out with, can you tell us a little bit about how you got involved with Tipping Point?
2: The topic of poverty is something that is near and dear to my heart. I grew up in a low-income household um, with amazing parents who I watched work incredibly hard and yet teeter on the line of being able to make ends meet. I was really fortunate to have a mom um, who had the foresight to invest in my education, actually from preschool. And, you know, I think really set me up to have a shot to move out of poverty. And I think through that experience, I had the opportunity to live the reality that we have two Americas in this country. One in which if you have, if your family has assets and it has wealth, uh, you have the opportunity uh, to kind of make your own path. And if your family doesn't have uh, wealth and doesn't have assets, There are lots of systems in place um, that are barriers to you to ever moving out of poverty. And we actually know, statistically speaking, that 70% of folks in this country that are born into poverty will stay in poverty. And so I decided that that was unfair and (laughs) that I wanted to, you know, spend um, my time and build a career really at addressing poverty and helping create opportunities for people um, to truly move out of poverty to realize their own human potential and ideally to find prosperity
1: oh that's so great <laughs> and you mentioned the importance of wealth there and that's something that comes up from time to time but i don't think everybody really has a full conception of what does wealth mean as opposed to income for example yeah. could you say a little bit more about that
2: yeah i would say you know well when i'm talking about wealth i'm not talking about, um, you know, make mansions or (laughs) the ability to, you know, live like a reality TV star. What I'm talking about is simply the ability to, if life happens to you, um, meaning, you know, you get sick or you lose your job, um, the ability to have something to fall back on, kind of a safety net that can help ensure that you um, don't lose everything. We know the majority of um, folks in this country are one check away from losing everything, or one um, illness incident away from losing everything. So, wealth really means in this scenario the ability to have life happen to you um, and have a safety net so that you can make your way through that moment um, and find your way back to stability.
1: So, giving people resilience.
2: Mm-hmm, yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. So, when you're looking at organizations that are working on fighting poverty, how do you judge effectiveness? What makes an organization successful in that space?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things. The first is I think it's incredibly important that, of course, getting somebody um, fed and getting their basic needs met are incredibly important. Um, But ideally, we want to help people actually move out of poverty, right? And so there are key indicators in people's lives that help point to whether or not they will actually end up moving out of poverty. One of those things is, you know, it starts as early as elementary school or in childhood. You know, if you're a child, were you born healthy? Um, Are you healthy when you enter school? By third or fourth grade, are you reading and math proficient? Once you graduate from high school, if you earn a high school degree, um, are you going to pursue higher education? Are you graduating from college? That first job that you have, the job that you eventually get, um, is it a job that will provide you with a real income, and a sustainable income, and not just kind of like a make ends meet income, Um, so self-sufficiency? If you have lost your housing and you're in a housing program, Do you find your way to stable housing and are you housed a year later? These are the types of things, again, that truly predict whether somebody can have that safety net that they need to make the long-term transition out of poverty.
1: You mentioned a number of things just now that spanned really across someone's life. Starting from early childhood, is there a big difference? if you start fighting poverty in childhood as opposed to coming in later on after someone has grown up in poverty?
2: Yeah. I mean, I would say, obviously, we human beings are incredible and uh, incredibly resilient, to use your word, Mm -hmm. and there's always an opportunity to make your way out of poverty. But I do think, of course, it helps if you don't have to fall into poverty to begin with or be in poverty to begin with. And so investing kind of earlier on is a really good investment um, for the long-term trajectory of a person.
1: So what would you say, as you've talked to people, both inside and outside the anti-poverty space, what are some of the biggest misconceptions that you run up against?
2: Misconceptions related to why people are in poverty.
1: Why people are in poverty. What are the best ways to alleviate poverty? Mm
2: -hmm. On the why people are in poverty... um, You know, I think we have a culture that blames people, um, because it's easier sometimes to blame people than to look at the systemic reasons that lead to people being in poverty. It's no mistake that people are in poverty. Um, We have a system that supports that. And we actually don't have a social safety net in this country. I think there is this belief that, you know, people get childcare and people get food and Um, people get, you know, job training. But the reality is um, our safety net is more of a we don't want you to starve to death and we want you to be able to show up in an emergency room uh, so you don't die. But we don't want to or we're not going to provide you with true opportunities to move out of poverty because that's on you. And it doesn't account for the fact that, again, life happens for people. And in those critical moments when, in a family, a parent loses uh, their job and both parents are working in a low-income household, that that person needs time to find another job. And so I think the idea that we already have supports for people who are in poverty is just not actually true. And people can work incredibly hard their entire lives um, and still not make their way out. I think a misperception or something I'm personally really curious um, and challenging in the way that we support folks in poverty, I think that we have done everything to try to move people out of poverty except give people money. (laughs) And, you know, I think that the time has come to consider that we should try, instead of making people jump through a million bajillion hoops to get supports that are not actually what they need to move out of poverty, that maybe money could be a part of the solution.
1: (laughs) Well, that seems like a great segue into talking more (laughs) specifically about universal basic income. So when did you first hear about basic income?
2: That's a really good question. I feel like probably in the last maybe year, year and a half, I think I got really interested in conversations about what the future of work could be and the reality that, you know, work is changing and the traditional nine to five is likely not going to exist for much longer and a lot of kind of the low to middle wage jobs that we are seeing folks move into are maybe not going to be there in the next 10 to 20 to 50 years and beginning to think about what we could do to help support people in making that transition Um, and stumbled on kind of the idea of basic income as a way Mm -hmm. to support people.
1: So you said a little bit about this before, but what is it that appeals most to you about the idea of basic income?
2: Yeah. Um, You know, I think, again, through like my entire career, I've seen people... Um, needlessly fall into poverty and when people fall into poverty it's not just that they go through a little bit of a struggle where they need to get through a couple of months and then they're okay I think people really lose everything they lose their stability They lose their sense of selves, their sense of what's possible for them. It's actually a traumatic experience, and it's a traumatic experience for them and their children that has ripple effects through the rest of their lives. And so I think the thing that really appeals to me about universal basic income is this idea that we can stop people who are needlessly falling into poverty, needlessly ending up in homeless shelters, needlessly ending up in bad situations. Um, we can provide them with a basic cushion so that that doesn't happen. And so that all of the resources that we're putting into social services right now can go to people who need kind of longer term supports, the most vulnerable folks, because we have stopped this huge population of folks from needlessly falling into poverty. And that you know young kids and families don't have to experience the trauma that is poverty needlessly.
1: There's a fairly widespread perception out there that if people are poor, they're poor because they deserve it somehow. Mm -hmm. And that there is something inherent Mm -hmm. about those folks Mm -hmm. that puts them in that situation. Mm -hmm. If we actually had a real safety net in place and people were getting support they need, where do you see them going?
2: Mm -hmm. That's a really good question. I think for so many of the people that I've met in my career um, and worked with that are experiencing poverty, they simply want stability for themselves and their families, and they simply want opportunity for their kids. And so I think if we had a true social safety net and if people were supported, um, they would invest in their children's education. They would be able to spend time with them after school reading to them and they would maybe start their own businesses or go back and get more education for themselves and better their own lives. I do honestly, I deeply believe that once people have a sense of both stability and the fact that they have true opportunity, beautiful, amazing things bloom. And I would like to see that reality and I would like to see that happen in our society.
1: What other programs would we need in addition to basic income to really have a comprehensive solution to poverty?
2: Yeah, I mean I think there are a couple of programs that I think um, would definitely need to continue. I think about childcare in this country, right? This was a huge mess of our society um, to not provide um, universal basic pre-K to uh, young people. The statistics show that, actually, people's life trajectories um, start in pre-K and having access to quality preschool. I think, you know, there's an estimate that here in the Bay Area, childcare can cost a family around $20,000 a year. You know, I think I would not want a universal basic income. It would be, sure... People could use it on whatever they want, including childcare, but it would be sad to see the universal basic income eaten up <laughs> mm-hmm. by, you know, basic needs that people have, um, like childcare, when it could go to helping a family start a business or helping a parent go back to school or helping a kid go to college or something like that. So I would say that there are basic things around healthcare, around childcare, um, around housing. Um, that our needs that will, that should, one, should be a basic human right, in my humble opinion, um, and that we as a community should be supporting for people.
1: Some proposals of basic income do include giving money for children. Mm-hmm. Does that seem like a good solution to you?
2: Yes. Um, but again, I would say, again, universal basic income isn't a silver bullet. What it is going to do, right, is help families have a potentially better quality of life. Um, It's not going to erase some of the isms that got us here. We have housing policies in this country um, that were built on racism. We have um, employment practices in this country that exclude large segments of the population due to um, both their economic backgrounds and racism, again, um, and all sorts of you know other outlying factors that help provide barriers on the way to people um, moving out of poverty that we have to work on as a society. And so, again, I think basic income is um, part of the solution of how we get there. Um, but I think that there are some things that we as a society um, and our government need to do to remove barriers to people truly making their way to stability and prosperity.
1: So thinking about moving towards the future with basic income, do you have concerns? Are there things you're worried about could go wrong?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I would say the thing that I get really, one of the things that I get really excited about um, when I think about universal basic income is this idea that we can finally say as a society that we believe that every person deserves and should have a basic quality of life. And that when life happens, as it happens to all of us, we all deserve the ability to have the space and time and supports we need to get back on our feet um, and find our way. And I think it has a potential to dispel this myth that Only good people (laughs) don't have issues in their lives and don't fall on hard times. I think the challenge, though, is that I think sometimes when people talk about basic income, they talk about it as a way to get rid of our societal contract and our societal um, agreement to each other, that we should support each other through this life um, and through what happens to us in this life. I would not want to see universal basic income be a way for people to buy out of that societal contract and that societal responsibility um, to each other and to the most vulnerable among us. And so it's my hope again that this is a supplement to the supports that we provide people as basic human rights um, and rights of um, citizenship and not something that we do instead of those things.
1: Any other thoughts you'd like to share around your work or basic income?
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess if I may be so bold, I would say in thinking about you know what the road to a potential universal basic income is, I think something that I, I've always really liked about philanthropy is that I think philanthropy has the opportunity to experiment um, and take chances um, in ways sometimes the public sector... Is challenged to do. And I think when looking kind of at the long term trajectory of trying to help alleviate poverty in this country, I think trying new approaches and new interventions to addressing poverty is something that philanthropy has the power to do and has the opportunity in this moment to do. I think as the public discourse circles around this topic, um, as people become more open to the idea, this is a great moment, I think, um, for experimentation.
1: Well, I certainly agree with that, and hopefully start <laughs> seeing a lot more of that in the near future. Milson, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us.
2: Thanks for having me here. I appreciate it.
1: That was Milson Johnson on the Basic
0: Income Podcast. So, Jim, it's you know we we're already seeing... Uh, y Combinator and GiveDirectly has, of course, been doing this a while, but it's exciting to think about how much room there is for cash transfers in the philanthropy space.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I feel like often when we talk about how are we going to actually learn more about basic income, our minds immediately go to governmental programs. But there, I think, is a ton of opportunity in having these philanthropies and private organizations also be doing research in this space and giving us better insights into what this can actually do, what sort of opportunities we can provide people with if if we start to provide cash transfers and and something like a basic income. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's going to take some of those efforts
0: to kind of clear the path for a a government uh, basic income to show what the logistics are like and that it works. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Basic Income Podcast. We'd love it if you subscribe to hear more fascinating conversations like this one, and have a great day.